Well, hey, welcome to Hope City Church. Uh, so glad you're here. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor at the church. And if nothing else today, at least the sun is out. Come on, right? We got a little sunshine. I haven't been outside since like 8.30, but when I got here, the sun was out. So I'm going to assume it's still out and it's not raining. So if, you know, who cares how good the sermon is? It's not raining today. And so that's, uh, that's a good thing. We've been taking a few weeks. We're going to continue for actually 12 weeks total to read through the book of John. It's a series we're calling The Goat. It's a series about Jesus. And we're reading the stories, the teachings, the miracles of Jesus uh, so that we would believe. You know, when you hear the message of Jesus, when you hear the gospel message, uh, you have an emotional response. One of two ways. You either fall more in love with Jesus and believe more and have more faith because you're finding out more and more about how good he is, or you hate it more and and rebel against it more and have more of a distaste for it, but you're never going to hear the gospel message of Jesus and just stay neutral in it. And so as we read through these stories and teachings and miracles of Jesus, uh, we are doing this so that we would believe. The guy who wrote the book, his name's John, he wrote the book and told us he wrote it so that we would believe, but not just that Jesus was a man who lived, we know that that is true, but that we would believe that Jesus is God, that he's not just a man, he's supernatural, he is God, and that he came from heaven to earth. He pressed pause on his godness and came from heaven to earth so that he could solve the problem of sin and death once and for all and give us a way to have life. And and as we believe that, our lives are changed, our hearts are changed. And so we are just diving into and going through this book of John together so that we would believe. And and we've said each week, and the Bible tells us, that, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, which is just a fancy way of saying that Jesus shows us what God is like, that Jesus is the form of God that puts skin on. And so if we want to know what God is like, maybe you've thought that, what is God like? We can look at Jesus and we can see the, the characteristics and the qualities of God. And one of the themes and the characteristics and the qualities of God that keeps coming up over and over again in these stories that we're reading is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. We learned this in the second week, and it keeps showing up. That Jesus is not 50% grace, 50% truth. He's 100% grace and 100% truth, which means he comes into every situation completely graceful and completely honest. And we are uncomfortable with that because we've never met anybody like that. We don't know anybody who is, who is full of grace and full of truth. We know people who are really graceful but then have trouble telling you the truth. And then we know people who are 100% truthful, like they're blunt, but they're also a jerk, right? And so we struggle with this idea and this concept that Jesus could be 100% graceful and 100% truthful. But what it means is that when it comes to our lives, he is so much more graceful and so much more gracious than We ever believe that he could be, but he also tells us the truth about our lives unlike anyone has ever told us the truth. He doesn't look past or wash over what it is that is causing us to sin or our sins. He deals with them graciously, but he also tells us the truth about them. 
And so if you're here and you keep showing up week after week and, and you're listening to these sermons and you feel as if God is challenging you or the Bible word would be convicting you or feeling as if there are these areas of your life that you need to deal with, it's because God is telling you the truth about your life. You are realizing the truth about your life. But on the flip side, what's amazing is that as you deal with the truth about your life, you run headfirst into the unbelievable grace of Jesus. 100% grace, 100% truth. And today we're going to be in John 8. We're reading a little story in John 8, and we're going to see this again. Full of grace and full of truth. And it reminds me of an old fable that I heard as a kid. Maybe you've heard this before. But I researched it this week, or I looked it up this week to make sure that I was remembering it right. But I want to just read this to you, just a children's fable that really illustrates this point. This is, this is what it says. It says, the north wind and the sun had a debate about which of them was stronger. While they were arguing, a traveler passed along the road wrapped in a cloak. The sun said, let's make a bet. Whoever can strip the traveler of his cloak is stronger. Very well, said the north wind, and at once sent a cold howling blast against the traveler. The wind caused the cloak to whip around the traveler's body, but immediately uh, he wrapped it close, and the harder the wind blew, the tighter he held on to it. All his efforts were in vain. Then the sun began to shine. At first, his beams were gentle and pleasant after the bitter cold of the wind, and the traveler unfastened his cloak and let it hang loosely from his shoulders. At last, he became so heated that he pulled off his cloak, and to escape the blazing heat, he threw himself down in the welcome shade of a tree by the roadside. And I, I remembered this fable, and I, it's just the perfect example of uh, what we're going to see in John 8 today. That gentleness and kindness always works better than forceful bluster, right? And that as Jesus is dealing with us about our lives, he is so much more the warm, gentle sun than he is the wind that tries to, to knock us over. And we're going to see that. So in John 8, it's going to be on your sermon guide if you want to grab that or if you have a Bible and you, you want to read along. Uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses together. And even though it's only 11 verses and it's a short story, it really is going to speak to two groups of people very personally. The first group is people who are disgusted by other people. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're disgusted with someone personally. They uh, recently confessed something to you, or you found out something about them, or you know some secret was revealed about their life, or uh, you, you just you know the truth about them. Or maybe your disgust is more general in nature. Maybe you just, in general, are disgusted by people and culture, and it feels like sin's never been worse, and politicians have never been worse, and culture's never been worse, and evil's never been more prevalent in the world. And so you just have a general distaste and a general disgust for people and for the world. Well, in these 11 verses, Jesus is going to really show us some truth if we find ourselves in that place. But there's also a second group of people that John 8 is going to speak to today, and that is people who are disgusted with themselves. 
There's people who are disgusted with other people, but then there are people who are disgusted with themselves, and Jesus is going to say something very specific to that group of people as, uh, as well. So let's read this together. John chapter 8, and we're going to start at the very first verse. If you happen to have a Bible, you can see the title right above the story that we're going to read. It's called A Woman Caught in Adultery. We don't know her name. Uh, We just see this label. We just know this label, which is just a terrible way to start, but also kind of sets the tone for where we're going. How would you like to be known as the worst thing you ever did? If nobody knew your name but just called you by the worst thing you ever did, the mom who, the wife who, the man who, the husband who, the employee who, like if you were just known by the worst thing you ever did, that is how this woman is known. No one ever knows her name. Let's see what happens. Verse 1, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teacher of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, which technically was true in Deuteronomy 22. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, stop for one second. Let me explain what's going on here. These religious people, we talked about this last week. There's this conflict now with Jesus. They are not concerned in the least about this woman. They don't care what happens to her. She just happens to be the tool that they're using to try and trap Jesus. Because at this time, it was it, only the Roman government could kill someone. And so they brought her to Jesus, and if he said to stone her and to kill her, then they could say to the Roman government, hey, he is rebelling against the government. But if he says don't stone her, don't kill her, then they could say, well, he's rebelling against God. So this is all a setup to try to trap him, which is a great reminder for us, by the way, that if we ever start using people for our agenda... That's usually a good sign that we've lost our tender, responsive, soft heart for God. If people don't have a name, if people don't have a face, if people don't have a story, if we just view people as people groups, if we just view people as those people, or we only use people's lives and failures as an example to prove our point or to, or to further our agenda, we have probably lost our heart for God. And we have become legalistic and religious. But Jesus, ain't no dummy, he stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. I think that word demanding is interesting. If that's a word that commonly describes you, it's probably a reminder to get back to Jesus. Back to Jesus. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, okay. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. 
I want you to imagine this scene for a moment if we were to modernize this. I want you to imagine Jesus has come to church. He's at the early service. He's not at the 12 o'clock, all right? He's at the 930, all right? And he's at the early service, and he's teaching, and they're having service. And all of a sudden, in the middle of service, this group of people who are fired up bust through the back, and they are dragging this woman with them who may or may not have clothes on. We don't know. All we know is they, they got her from the bed of a married man and have, and have drug her to church, and they bring her down to the front right in front of Jesus, and they throw her down, and they put her on full blast for everybody to know her, her junk, her, her, her mess up, her sin, her story. If we were going to modernize this, it would be the equivalent of, of us being in church and all of a sudden an angry mob busts in and someone says, hey, everyone turn your attention to the screen and, 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 and they showed a video, a, a sex tape of somebody who was, who was having an affair. Now if you were here and you were having an affair but nobody knew it, you would be worried that maybe it was a sex tape of you and so everybody would be scrambling thinking, oh my gosh, did they get a tape of me, right? But ultimately we would find out that it was somebody, one somebody, one person, and there would be a tape up on the screen and people would be watching them commit adultery. And what's interesting is when that would happen, there would be two sides in the room, there'd be two groups of people in the room. The first group of people, and probably most of the people in the room, would be shocked and appalled. You would cover your eyes, and even though you knew what the person was doing was wrong, you would feel sorry that their whole uh, you know, scene was being displayed and their sin was being shown for everybody. You would feel sympathy and compassion for the person who is having to go through this ordeal. That's what a lot of us in the room would feel. But there would be another group of people, and those group of people would have a huge smile on their face, and they would be high-fiving. And they would be excited that they got her. That they got her. Somebody set up the camera. Somebody set up the, the you know, made all the logistics work, and they got her. And now everybody can know the truth, and this, this woman can finally be found out for who she is. That would be another group of people. And so that's what's happening in this story in John 8. You've got one group of people high-fiving because they got her. You've got another group of people who feel awful for what's happening to this woman. And then you've got Jesus, and he's there, and he's got to decide what to do. Full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. And so what Jesus does is he... He walks this pattern, or he, he shows us this pattern of how he deals with our sin. How he deals with our sin. And I just want to show you this pattern in these 11 verses that we read together. Three truths that are obvious to us as we read this story in John 8. And if you have a sermon, God, grab that. I would love for you to write these in, in the blanks on your sermon, God. But as we're reading through this story and see what's happening in the life of this, of this woman, the first thing that we see or are reminded of is that my sin is worse than I believe. My sin. Not talking about anybody else's sin. I'm talking about my sin. My sin is worse than I believe. The first thing Jesus does in this instance is he does not deal 
with the adulterous woman. He does not ask her details about what happened. The first thing he does is he addresses the people in the room who are disgusted by other people's sin. And he uses an illustration or he uses this example or or this qualifier to remind them that their sin is worse than they think it is. Their sin, not her sin, their sin. That their sin is worse than they think it is. Now, I want to read you another thing from Matthew 7. You don't have to find it. I just want to read it to you. But it's another time that Jesus was talking. And in Matthew 7, the first two verses, Jesus said this. He said, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Maybe somebody said that to you before. Like Jesus said, don't judge me, right? For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. That's what Jesus said about judging other people. Now, Jesus was not saying that you won't judge other people because that would be impossible. You cannot help but make judgment calls about other people. Now, you judge people more than you realize you're judging people, but there's no way to turn that switch off to never judge people. And by the way, there are instances in life where you need to make judgment calls, right? You want to borrow money from me? I need to see, I need to size up the situation here. Am I going to get this money back? Is this a gift or is this a loan, right? I got to figure that out, right? If you want to watch my kids, you want to babysit my kids, guess what? I'm totally making a judgment call about you, okay? You got full-on neck tattoo and, like, eyebrow tattoos. That's probably not going to work, all right? Just heads up, no offense if you got those, all right? Like, like I'm just, I'm making a judgment call. I'm just being honest with you right now as a dad, okay? Just being straight up honest with you, okay? You're hiring somebody at an office that you're, you know, working with. Like, you got to make a judgment call about somebody. So Jesus is not saying that you go through your life and you don't make judgment calls about people. What Jesus is saying is that when it comes to judging people, we forget that we don't meet the standards that we expect other people to meet. He says the standards you use will be the standards that are used on you. And I love the way Tim Keller describes this. He's a pastor in New York. And he says, the best way to understand this is imagine that you lived your life with a tape recorder hanging around your neck, right? And you live your life and, and the, your whole life, everything you say is recorded. The way you talk about other moms is recorded. The way you talk about the way people manage their money is recorded. The way you talk about other Christians who attend your church is recorded. The way you talk about other people's physical appearance is recorded. All of it, your whole life. You stand before God one day after your life is over and he takes the tape recorder off of your neck and he rewinds it to the beginning and he hits play and he says, we'll use your standards to see if you were acceptable. Now, that's a fictional example because we know that if we've committed our life to Christ, we are only judged by what Jesus did. So the good news is that one day we're gonna stand before God guilty But he's going to say, why should you get in? And we'll say, because Jesus, and he'll go, right answer, and we'll get in, okay? But in this example that I'm giving you, that's what it would feel like in order to be judged according to your standards. Everything you've ever said about other moms, we're going to judge your parenting against it. Everything you've ever said about other people's managing money, we're going to judge how you manage your money against your words. And as I say that, some of you in the room are like, well, I'd be fine, because like, I I don't mess up right? Or some of you say, well, I don't have that. I don't, I don't put those standards on other people. What's tragically ironic is that we have major blind spots about our faults. 
We cannot spot our own sins and our own faults. We can smell somebody else's B.O. from a mile away, but we can't smell our own stink, right? And, and, so, and so we have these blind spots, and so we get riled up and want to know why adulterous women are not being stoned without remembering that we are sinners and we deserve to be stoned. Now, I don't have time to, to like deep dive it, but I do just want to read you this because I think it's too good not to read. There's a story in the Old Testament, just seven verses I want to read to you. It's about a guy named David. Maybe you're familiar with him, David and Goliath. He's older now. He's a king now. He's amazing. He's spiritual. Jesus, I mean, God loves him. He loves God, but he had a bad month, all right? He just kind of, just tailspin. I don't know. He just had a crazy month, and in this month, he he slept with Bathsheba, who was married. He got her pregnant. He tried to cover up the pregnancy and the affair by tricking the husband who didn't fall for it. So then he murdered the husband, and then when they signed the death certificate, he married Bathsheba, okay? That's a bad month, just heads up right there. And so this is what happens in David's life, but he kind of goes on with his life, right? He kind of gets away with it until one day God sends a man named Nathan to remind David that his sin is worse than he remembers, okay? 2 Samuel 12, I just want to read it to you. You don't have to find it, but it's 2 Samuel 12, just seven verses. It says, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children and ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. And that's disgusting, but that's how some of y'all treat your dogs, but that's a separate talk for another time. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. He loves this thing, okay? And one day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and he killed it and he prepared it for his guest. Fictional story to get a point across. Now, verse five, look at what David says. David was furious, livid. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lamps to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. And then in verse seven, Nathan's like, bro, you're the man. I'm talking about you. David is ready to kill a man over killing another guy's sheep. And it never dawns on him in his anger about what this guy did, that he slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant, and murdered him and married her. How do we do that? But we all do it. We all do it. We get angry, and we demand of others, and we cut ourselves all the grace and all the slack. We mess up, we're a work in progress. You mess up, you're a failure. I need grace, you need more discipline, right? And we forget that my sin is worse than I believe. And so Jesus says, listen, here's what we'll do. Technically, you're right, but we gotta find people to stone her. So let's see who has the credentials. Anybody in here who has never sinned, you go first. In other words, Jesus says, I know that she disgusts you, But I'm wondering why your sin doesn't disgust you. And, and so if you, if you can tally up your score and you're at zero, then you can be a part of the stoning committee. But if not, you got to go. And everybody walked out. 
the sanctuary emptied until only Jesus is left of this woman. And so the first thing that Jesus says to these people who are disgusted by other people is, your sin is worse than you believe. And the same thing is true for us. But let's look at the second one. Not only is my sin worse than I believe, but number two, God's grace is better than I believe. God's grace is better than I believe. Jesus empties out the auditorium. And he's standing there. He's probably down on his knees at this point to get eye to eye with this woman. And he says to her, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Now what's interesting is Jesus was the only person qualified to condemn her. If in order to be on the stoning committee, you had to be sinless, the only person who could be on the committee, the chairman of the committee, could be Jesus Christ. Because he never sinned. So the only person qualified to stone her and to condemn her was Jesus, but he would rather forgive her. And so he said, neither do I condemn you. I love the pattern of what happened here, and it's my favorite thing about the story, and it's I've brought it up before, and I, I love this story because Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you, go and, condemn you, go and sin no more, but no one hears him say it. Did you recognize that? He sends everybody away. So check this out. That night at dinner, the angry mob who's sitting at the kitchen table, they're wondering why Jesus doesn't have a problem with adultery. They're saying like, well, I mean, he just, he don't even care. Like he don't have standards. Like he's just gonna let her get away with it. I mean, he didn't even say one thing to her. Now Jesus did have a conversation with her, but he is a very personal God. And so he sent everyone away, and then he looked her in the eye, and he said, I love you, and I don't condemn you, and I want you to stop doing this. And just so you know, that is the philosophy of what we try to do at Hope City Church, and I think the greatest reputation we could ever have here is if other people and other religious Christians and other churches and other people was like, man, they'll let you get away with anything over there. I mean, they, they, don't even, they don't even care about sin. They don't even talk about it. They're, just, they, they, they got, they're so gracious that like anybody can do anything over there. I hope that the public perception of us is just ridiculous grace. Because sitting across coffee tables and living rooms and kitchen tables and car rides, we will have hard conversations. We'll, we'll challenge each other to raise our standard of living and to stop sinning. But we'll do it through relationship, not corporately to make some angry mob happy. And so Jesus looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I could condemn you. I'm the only person qualified to condemn you. But I would rather forgive you. And so not only is my sin worse than I believe? And not only is God's grace better than I believe, but number three we see in this story, my life can be more than I believe. I love this. I love this pattern that Jesus uses. Jesus sends the religious judgmental people away. He sets the record straight that she's not condemned and then he deals with her sin. I don't know your religious background or how, what you're familiar with, but usually we try to reverse it. And we try to say, stop sinning, and if you stop sinning, you won't be condemned, and if you stop sinning and you're not condemned, then nobody will judge you or have a problem with you. 
But Jesus flips it and says, forget them. It doesn't matter. They're just as lost as you are, but they just don't realize it. I don't condemn you. Now let's talk about your sin. Know that you don't have to live up to somebody else's standards. Know that I love and accept you right where you are. Now can we talk about your sin? That's how Jesus did it. And he looks at her and he says, go and sin no more. And he would look at you today and he would tell you the exact same thing. But he's not telling you because he's running out of grace and if you don't get it together, you're out of luck. No, he's not telling you because somebody got a hold of him and said, you know, you need to look out for the church over there. There's a bunch of sinners over there. No, he's telling you because your life could be more than you think it could be. And for some of you in the room today, you have lived with this guilt and shame and disgust for yourself since childhood or school or college or the divorce or the affair or the bankruptcy or the crime or the addiction or the rehab, and you are convinced that you have to settle for less than what the other really spiritual non-messed up people have to settle for. It's not true. It's not true. Your life can be more. And Jesus wants you to leave this place and to let, set, set aside your sin and to put it behind you so that you can live the life that he created you to live. In other words, Jesus says to this woman, you don't have to be this person. You don't have to be the woman caught in adultery if you don't want to be. You don't have to be the addict. You don't have to be the adulterer. You don't have to be the widow. You don't have to be the drunk. You don't have to be the bankrupt. You don't have to be that person. You can leave this moment knowing that I've got your back and knowing that I don't condemn you, and you can set your sin aside, and you can live the life that I created you to live. He wasn't giving her a license to keep sinning. He was giving her the greatest reason you could ever have to stop because you're already loved and accepted by God. You don't have to prove anything to him and you definitely don't have to prove anything to anybody else. Prove it to yourself. You don't have to be this person. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this life. And I want to end by reading you one more verse. We read 1 through 11 in John 8, but I want to read verse 12 to you. And if you have a Bible, there's actually a line, like the story's over, and it goes to a whole other section and a whole other story. And Jesus isn't talking to the woman caught in adultery anymore. There's a whole separate talk. But the very first words he said perfectly fit into what he said to this woman. In verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to, I love that phrase, walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Jesus doesn't say don't walk in darkness. He says you don't have to walk in darkness. It's different. Make sure you don't. That's not what he said. He said you don't have to. That's different. He says, you don't have to walk in darkness. You can walk in the light that leads to life. And so if you're here today and you're disgusted with yourself, you don't have to live in the darkness anymore. 
you can live in the light that leads to life. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that when I stand before you, I will not be judged based on my failures, but I will be judged based on Jesus. And God, every day that I wake up and I keep telling myself that my behavior is what's most important, will you continue to remind me that it's Jesus that's most important? that I'm accepted and forgiven and free, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And so, God, I just pray for every person in the room right now, those who are disgusted by others, will you remind us today of how disgusting our sin is and get our eyes off of other people's sin? And God, I pray for the people in the room today who are disgusted with themselves. Will you help them to know that you don't condemn them and that they don't have to walk and live in the darkness anymore? They can live in the light that leads to life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.